It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lee. Welcome to the Sunday edition of Daily Thunder which is our campus uh, service here at uh, the Ellerslie campus. And uh, I'm, I'm loving a series that I'm going through right now, and I still don't know how long this series is going to go, but uh, I think this is episode 13 uh, in the series, which is Spiritual Lessons from World War II. I know, it sounds a little strange if you're just poking your head in. It's like Eric's talking about World War II. And yet it has been... Invigorating. Any of you that have gone through it, it is profound. The, the realities of physical warfare as tied with the realities of what we go through in our spiritual lives. It's not Eric that ties war with the spiritual life. It's God in and through his word. Paul the Apostle is going to go out of his way to create a very dynamic link between the two. And, but he's going to go out of his way to also clarify that the weapons of our warfare are not of this earth. In other words, it's different and that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's different how we engage in spiritual battle, but battle nonetheless, it is. And so to go through this, if you've missed any of the previous ones, there are some doozies in there that are just extremely potent and powerful that we've covered, and so I highly encourage this. One of the fun things about modern technology is to sort of like go on and get the podcast, and you can listen through uh, all the, the previous ones. Could you imagine what it was like before they had, remember tape ministries in churches where they would capture on audio cassette, and then they would have a duplication service? We so much easier now. Uh, so this one is called The Ripple Effect of Love. This is an unusual angle that I'm sort of injecting in, because it's been in my list from the beginning as far as a World War II story. I've been, if, you, if you've been going through chronologically with me, I'm going to jump out of chronology and just sort of go to big picture World War II. But uh, I'm, I'm in like 1940, sort of the end of 1940, which does, shows that I haven't gotten very far because the war started in the end of 1939 and I've labored through to even get uh, through the first uh, year. I haven't even done that, I don't think yet. So, uh, but... It's been invigorating and exciting, at least for me. I, I mean, everyone else could be miserable, but I'm having the time of my life. So this is the ripple effect of love. When you talk about war, oftentimes love is not the synonym uh, that you're going to think of. And yet what's interesting is as Christians, the two are synonymous. In other words, yes, we are engaged in a war, and you want to know how we're going to win it? With love. <laughs> and I... That, uh, that doesn't make any sense. And if you're, Winston, if you're, give, if you're uh, on the war cabinet with Winston Churchill and Great Britain, you're not going to say, hey, uh, Winston, I have a great idea. Let's just love Hitler. Okay, that doesn't sound like it's effective, and I get that. Natural warfare and the issues between governments, there's some, there's some differences. However, as Christians, it is actually how we win the battle. Ultimately, this is how it is won. It is with a weapon that is not carnal but is mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And that's what we're going to focus on today. So uh, I, I accidentally said the conversation of D.L. Moody. It's the conversion of D.L. Moody. Sorry, that was a last-minute addition to this message. So obviously, my lack of proofreading is the first thing I'm going to notice as we start out. So this is the conversion of D.L. Moody. Fascinating story. I, I've, I've shared this before, but it's been multiple years. 
Uh, D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, when 18 years of age, was a boot salesman in his uncle's store in Boston. His Sunday school teacher was a Mr. Kimball, and he had set his heart on winning the young man for Christ. After praying about the matter, he arranged to visit him at the boot store. I was determined, to use his own words, to speak to him about Christ and about his soul and started down to Holton's boot store. When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to go in just then during business hours. I thought my call might embarrass the boy. And, and that when I went away, the other clerks would ask who I was and taunt him with my efforts in trying to make him a good boy. In the meantime, I had passed the store, and discovering this, I determined to make a dash for it and have it over at once. I found him in the back part of the building wrapping up shoes. I went up to him at once, and putting my hand on his shoulder, I made what I felt afterwards was a very weak plea for Christ. So let's just stop there. Intriguing story to me, because this story is going to create a ripple effect. Here's a Sunday school teacher who has a burden for this young boy named uh, Dwight. Uh, Dwight. Uh, and... Yeah, is he? Is he your namesake? Oh, hey, so this is a powerful story for, for Dwight, uh, Dwight Schubert, too. So we have this young lad named Dwight who's not healthy, okay? He's belligerent, rebellious. He's, you know, living in darkness. And this Sunday school teacher has a burden. But like all of us, we want to walk out and fulfill that burden but it's awkward, and he's having every reason that we have to. It's like, this is just inappropriate for me to go into a business establishment. It's the same thing I have when I'm thinking of Starbucks standing up and preaching in Starbucks. It's a business establishment that just isn't what you do. Okay, he's going through the same thing. Should I go in? I don't want to, like, come up to him, and then his buddies say, who was that? And, oh, he was trying to win my soul, and then they taunt him. You know, he doesn't want to create problems for him, and then he obeys, right? And then you'd think that when we obey that everything would just go smoothly. Instead, you feel oftentimes like you did a pathetic job. I don't know if any of you have ever had that where your brain sort of fogs over because you're so awkward in the moment that what you give as far as your gospel, like in your sane moments, you're actually very sound at giving the gospel. But then when you get into those moments, you just sort of feel like you fumble through it. And then even afterwards, you're like, that was horrible. <laughs> I could have said that so much better. So that's what we have here. I went up to him at once, and putting my hand on his shoulder, I made what I felt afterwards was a very weak plea for Christ. I don't know just what words I used, nor could Mr. Moody tell. I simply told him of Christ's love for him and the love Christ wanted in return. That was all there was. It seemed the young man was just ready for the light, and then that then broke upon him, and there in the back of the, that store in Boston, D.L. Moody gave himself and his life to Christ. So that happened. You know, D.L. Moody has changed, but what I, remember, this is the ripple effect of love. This is one step of obedience that this man is going to do. He's willing to get uncomfortable to do something for one little boy in his Sunday school. So Edward Kimball was the guy's name. Edward Kimball is going to impact D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody is going to impact, I don't know why my, is going to Im, uh, impact a man named Wilbur Chapman. I, and I, if I have longer time, I can actually go through each of their stories. It's profound. And uh, Wilbur Chapman's going to impact the great evangelist that will go all over the world and speak, Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday, I don't know why this thing isn't working, uh, is going to impact a guy named Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham is going to lead a man named Billy Graham uh, to the Lord. And so the amount, we're talking millions of people 
are going to come to know the love of Christ because of an awkward Sunday school teacher that is going to fumble his way through a very poorly delivered message about the love of Christ. And to me, that's encouraging. I'm not sure how you appropriate that, but for me, we sometimes feel that we have to be polished. We have to have our weaponry so exact. But in actuality, God's looking for obedience. He's looking for willingness. And there is a ripple effect. There is something that is going to take place in this world when we step out to speak the words of truth in love. Jesus Christ uh, is going to speak to us, Luke 6, 27 through 35. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also should do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? What's interesting is almost every single thing I'm reading there is very difficult to swallow. That is very opposite of the way that we naturally are going to uh, engage with those that are hostile towards us. And it's, it's interesting because I'm dealing with a series on World War II here, and yet to talk about this seems contrary to what is going to be the medicine for Hitler and the Nazi regime. And yet in individual lives, individual Christian lives, you're going to see it modeled on the battlefield. You are going to see moments of mercy that are staggering, that are deeply moving. When you see a Christian man on both sides, whether it's a German or whether it's uh, you know, on the Allied side, that knows that what they're a part of is maybe even a ridiculous battle of politics, but at the same time, they're individual Christians engaged in situations where they can express the love of Jesus. You know if that if you're a Christian in Germany, you have no, even if you're a conscientious objector, there's no such thing. You're just inscripted and, or conscripted. And so as a result, you are going to be fighting whether you want to or not. And if you don't, you'll just be thrown into prison or killed. So it's like you don't have the option. Could you imagine being, uh, having to fight for Hitler? I mean, how would you do that? Just the, uh, the difficulties of these moments. And so in the midst of it, how do we as Christians function? So I just want to, that's, that's what this message is, is I want to talk about very specifically the ripple effect of love. For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those for whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. I'm just going to read that last line again, because that's a, that's a strange line right there. For he is kind to the unthankful and and evil. <laughs> That's not the way we function. So I've established pretty clearly that the Hitler Nazi regime is one of, it's a, it's a picture of evil. That's what it is. It's like satanic. It is horrifying. And I, I'm not, my, my prescription isn't necessarily to try and propagate it and to help it. I believe that Great Britain is right and Winston Churchill is right in standing against it and marshalling the forces uh, of his commonwealth against it. 
And yet, as the individual Christian, there is something very, very important for us to remember. So this last week, and I know uh, Dwight actually was, I think, the first one to tell me that uh, I needed to see uh, Free Burma Rangers, which came out on Monday and Tuesday of this last week, and I'd never heard of it. And in fact, when even I heard the name Free Burma Rangers, I didn't know if that was like a command, like go and free Burma Rangers. I didn't know what it meant. It didn't make any sense to my mind logically. But Dwight Schubert said, you must, must, must see this. Okay. So, uh, and I had five different people tell me that day I, that I needed to go see it. That was, there were, I don't know if it was around the third person when Philip called me up and said, uh, I don't know, this isn't an exact quote, but look, Eric, we've never taken Ellerslie students to a movie before, but if there was ever a time, this would be the one. And so we actually had a lot of the Ellerslie students from this semester that went with us on Tuesday night. And uh, it's hard to describe what it was like watching that. And it's, uh, but if I could describe in a simple statement what it was that I witnessed, it was an army of love, sacrifice, radical service, and death-defying rescue. In a strange way, it's, it was a picture of Christ entering into battle situation and willing to lay down his life that others could live. And it was, it was very tangible to my soul to be able to, uh, to see something and to grip it. I can understand the debates. I mean, we have all sorts of different denominational expressions in here, and some are, come from uh, non-resistance backgrounds, and here you have a guy that has a gun in this. And so I, I get the tensions. However, one thing that I think transcends it all is when God gets a hold of a man or a woman of God, and he says, would you give me your life? Would you let me love in and through you? And when those people are willing to spend and be spent, it is very powerful. And this was such a tangible picture. There were certain scenes in there that were so moving to my soul that lifted me to think higher thoughts, to live in a higher way. And I saw nobility tangible. It's different than watching a movie where it's, it's scripted and it's fake. This was like real. And it was significant for my soul. So uh, free Burma Rangers of World War II. In other words, if we're going to use that term, which was the, the term, that's the title of these, these Burmese that were trained by this uh, man named uh, David Eubanks, uh, who was an army ranger. And so he went to Burma, to Myanmar, and actually trained up uh, men and women in that country to be able to effectively serve and help those that were in need. And so if we're going to use the term FBRs, Free Burma Rangers of World War II, the Ten Booms in Holland, you know what they're doing? They're radically risking their life to serve the Jews. I mean, it's a profound picture. If you study the hiding place, whoa. I mean, Casper Ten Boom, that guy's a man. I, I, I love Casper Ten Boom. And he is, you know, when you think of Casper Ten Boom, you're not thinking of a guy that's going to tote a gun, right? There's a different expression of this in each each person that God has created, but there is something similar about the two where this man just sort of stares the risks in the face and he says, we need to help the Jews. And so they open up their home to receive the Jews in it. And guess what? They are going, Casper is going to die uh, in prison. Uh, he, in, in fact, is allowed to stay back. He's even said he's, he's too old. He, he doesn't need to come. 
And actually, I think I'm getting a different, I'm mixing it up with a different story. So never mind, cancel that. I think he didn't have a choice. Uh, is that true? Casper was taken and he didn't have a choice. I'm thinking of. Uh, that's right, that was right. If you never host Juice Again, we, we will leave you alone, old man. And he said, I can't promise that. Uh, and so the worm brands in Romania. So this is all during World War II. And the worm brands, I mean, I tell you what, the, uh, uh, the effects of Richard Wormbrandt under Nazism, because uh, Romania was under the Nazi regime first. Most of us know about the Wormbrands under the, uh, the Stalin regime uh, of so Soviet communism. But uh, it's an ex extraordinary stories of how this man lived and the outward nature of his life. And what I love is, if you've ever seen Tortured for Christ, I love this, the, the picture of him going into uh, the barracks where the, uh, the Soviets, uh, this, the, the, the communist soldiers are, and sharing the gospel with them. I mean, he's risking his life, and he's going to suffer uh, greatly for it. And, but the story I want to focus on today is Peggy Covell, in America. She was a free Burma Ranger. So Jesus Christ makes it clear and just, you know, so that we understand the distinction. In other words, yes, we're in a battle, but our battle is different than the world's. And the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are not earthly. We have been given weapons to be able to deal a blow to the enemy that the world doesn't understand. They don't tote the weapons we have, and they can't. You, you don't go down to your army surplus store and find the stuff that we have that is only in the heavenly, heavenly surplus store. It, is, it was gained through the throne room of grace through faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul the Apostle says in Romans 5.5, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This love is our chief weapon. In fact, very uh, simply put, and some of us don't like the word weapon. It's like, why do we need to use the word weapon? Well, we are talking about World War II, right? But it is a weapon. It is not a weapon towards, like if I go down the street and I love someone, it's not a weapon to harm them. It's a weapon to free them. In other words, it's like I'm holding a gun at the, at the one who's holding them hostage, and I said, let them go. My love, in a strange way, is leveraged to cut cords that are tying them. In a strange way, love breaks through things that otherwise could not be broken. In 1 Corinthians 13, I know many of us have even memorized this, but I want us to freshly lift it up. Every one of these scriptures, when you get to scriptures on love in the Bible, it's like, well, yeah, I, mean, I know that one. I know that one. However, it is the truth. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Now what's interesting is what Paul is doing is he's building a case through 1 Corinthians, and he is talking about things like tongues. I mean, talking about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about uh, the fact that, you know, the gift of prophecy. And he's talking about the way that the church ought to function. But he's saying, you could have all the form, but if you don't have this, it's nothing. This is the evidence that you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. This is the chief revelation that the church is supposed to give. 
We love. That's what we do. So what are we known for? Love. John 13, 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples. Stop. Okay, now imagine we didn't know the rest of that sentence. And imagine it was like some ancient manuscript that we got, and it's like, it's cut off right there. Well, I know how the modern church has filled it in. By this, you will all know that my, by this all will know that you are my disciples. By your theology. By your soundness of doctrine. Okay, you could fill this in by, by the fact that you have the right eschatology. By the fact that you've chosen the right soteriology. I mean, you could fill in the, the, the end statement there because we have divisions in the church which are going to stop and put something else in there to say, well, you know, brother, if you're really going to be a part of this whole thing called the church, you better have this figured out. And if you don't, then there's a snub that immediately begins to be created. And I just want to overrule that with something that Jesus says himself, if you have love for one another. The chief evidence, even to ourselves, that we are born again is that we have love specifically for the body of Christ, which is an extraordinary statement. But that love isn't just for the body of Christ. It's love that is poured into our hearts and it gushes out onto everything around us, everyone around us. And this is a chief evidence, not just to us, not just to others in the church, but to the world out there. By this, all will know. That means the world out there is part of the all. They will know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. They will witness something in our relationship with each other and even in our relationship with them. Test a Christian. Poke at them. Bless you. So, and I've said this before. If any of you have, we talk, if, if you ever get me on the issue of uh, the weight of doctrinal accuracy as opposed to behavioral accuracy because I know that might sound strange but I'm a big fan of being doctrinally correct I'm not against doctrinal correction but what bothers me is when people are doctrinally correct and behavioral heresies heret heretics in other words where they're not loving how could, how could you be so right in your doctrine and not have love that doesn't make any sense to me a guy who comes to scripture and says, I want to know what God has to say to me. What am I going to catch? Oh, I better be loving. <laughs> I mean, that would be the first, there's just a few basics. You better forgive, Eric. You better be humble. You better love, right? You need faith, Eric, and it needs to be the faith of like a five-year-old, okay? And so these are like basic basics. But if I don't have love, but I have I have knowledge and I have mystery, understanding of mysteries. I have tongues. I have prophecy. I have all that. It's clanging symbol stuff. What good is it if I don't have the oomph of Christianity, the life of Christianity? If God really moves into a life, he's going to love through that life. And so that's the chief attribute. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this is the rest of 1 Corinthians 13, not the rest. This is the, the rest that's going to emphasize what love is, which I think is, it's good for us to rekindle our memory on this because we memorize this when we're in grade school and then for whatever reason, we just think we know it. But it would do us good probably to break this out and study this and, and remember how the Holy Spirit desires to work through us and what love really is. Love suffers long. I, I could just stop right there. Uh, love suffers long. In other words, if you're going to suffer, 
and you have love, you're willing to suffer for a long time. You don't suffer short, you suffer long. Of course, we know it usually as love is patient. But if you knew what patience is, in Scripture, in the, in the Greek, the idea is the ability to endure great trials and not snap. <laughs> so, yeah, suffers long. You see, this is like, a, again, you're going to start defining love when, some, the, when the world hates you, when they spit upon you, that you still endure through that and you suffer long to give them life, to give them mercy. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not parade itself. I think that is a hilarious uh, translation of it. Parade itself. It's not about you. You're willing to be forgotten. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. If you were just to lift that one out and say love is not rude, and you know how that could change our lives? You, you take that into each home that we have represented here, and that's a profound statement because it's very easy to be rude. Now, when we're around each other in here, the likelihood of us being rude is lower, okay? Because, well, we want to put on our, in our best front, you know, and show the best side of our life. But when we're at home, rudeness can come out very quickly, but that's not love. Love is not rude. It does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. It, is not, it thinks no evil. Could you imagine that one? Love thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So Peggy Covell is sort of my study for the day. Extremely fascinating, deeply moving story to Leslie and I. I think we first came across it when we were uh, doing a book on Jacob de Chaser. Uh, it was some kind of biography on Jacob de Chaser, who was one of the, uh, the Doolittle Raiders in World War II. And in this book, it had this little side note on Peggy Covell. So Leslie and I started unpacking Peggy's story at a greater level. It's deeply impacting, sort of like Free Burma Rangers was for me on Tuesday. It's sort of like this. This would be made for a great movie, by the way. I don't, don't know if it has enough stuff in it to make for a great movie, but it's good. So Peggy Covell, at the age of 18, is back in the United States. In fact, I want to say she was somewhere around Colorado area. But uh, the reason I know that is because of what's about to happen in the story. But her parents uh, were missionaries over in Japan. And they felt called to minister to the Japanese and to express the love of Jesus to the Japanese. And when the war started, they were deemed dangerous. In fact, uh, they were uh, murdered by the Japanese. So here they are giving their life to serve uh, Japan and the Japanese, and instead they're murdered. And, you know, it's one of those classic moments that each of us faces of like, what good was that? Uh, well, that sure seemed like a waste. Uh, you know, the very people that you came to love actually uh, kill your, uh, your family. So Peggy is back in the United States. I don't remember what brought her back, you know, if it was school or, or what, what she was there for. But could you imagine working through this of recognizing that, I mean, because many of us, when we look at Germany in World War II, it would be very easy to hate Germans. When we look at Italy and their betrayal of the Allied uh, uh, resistance and they're going to join Hitler, I mean, it's very easy to start hating Italians. And when we see Japan and what they're going to do, 
and they're going to take advantage of the fact that the Allies are so uh, embroiled in, in hit this battle with Hitler, they're going to start, you know, doing territory grabs. Uh, Japanese. Well, how about if they killed your parents who were only over there to love them? Excuse me? And so you can imagine how hatred could enter in. And so they had these internment camps in the United States. One was like near the Colorado border, where, near where Peggy was. And Peggy is working through this. She's going to come to the place where the work of the Holy Spirit is going to bring her to the place of forgiving the Japanese people. And the first practical step the Holy Spirit is going to move upon her to do is to go and basically serve the Japanese that are in this internment camp. And so she's going to go to basically wash their feet and to tend to them. And this is a statement when she was 18. The Japanese army killed my parents, but the Holy Spirit has washed away my hatred and has replaced it with love. Now again, sort of like the Sunday school teacher, Mr. Kimball, it's like, yeah, it's a neat statement. It's a beautiful thing that she's doing, and it's profound. But the impact of this is going to change nations. Peggy doesn't know that. She's just doing what God is working in her, her to do, which is to love. But most of us don't realize how powerful love is. So Mitsuo Fuchida was, I don't remember his exact position, but he is going to be one of the heroes of the Pearl Harbor campaign. So he, to the Japanese, he, this guy is a hero. He's one of the leaders, if not the leader, or one of the key pilots, I don't remember his exact position, of the Pearl Harbor campaign. So as an American, you're thinking, we do not like this guy. And this man is going to be impacted so deeply by Peggy Covell. You're like, how did that happen? Well, I'll, I'll tell you in just a second. To the point that he gives his life to Jesus Christ and becomes an evangelist in the nation of Japan. And he speaks all over Japan, and thousands upon thousands of Japanese are going to come to Christ because of the ministry of Mitsuo Fuchida. But how did Mitsuo Fuchida come to Christ? Strangely, it's related to Peggy Covell. Oh, I didn't give you the quote here. Revenge has always been a major motif in Japanese thought, but I am here to say to you that forgiveness is a far greater moral than revenge. I know you long for peace, personal peace, world peace, and I am here to tell you that real peace comes only through Jesus Christ. He's speaking to an audience of 7,000 people in Japan, and at this time, he's actually referring to a young lady in, you know, near the Colorado, uh, it was Colorado-Kansas border, I, I, that's my, my guess of where, where the camp was that is going to show inexplicable love to a Japanese prisoner, even though her parents were killed brutally by the Japanese, that she chose to forgive. And that ripple effect of her forgiveness and her practical love is going to change a man in that Japanese camp. Matthew 13, Jesus says, another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. It's interesting because the Pharisees are like leaven. Their doctrine is like leaven, the leaven of the Pharisees. And so we're like, oh, leaven. But then the kingdom of God is likened unto leaven. And leaven is a change agent, if you could say it. That's a pretty good word for it. It's a change agent. When it's put into something, it is going to alter it and cause it to grow. And so that could grow in the wrong way. 
if it's the wrong sort of leaven, but the leaven of the kingdom of heaven, when you invest love, when you invest the truth of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And what you're going to see is Peggy Covell's sacrificial love, where she's going to say, I forgive. And I'm willing to be the vessel of God to love. Is going to have a tremendous impact. So here's Jim and Sharma Covell. In, uh, they're the Japanese uh, missionaries. And their life is going to look like a failure for all practical purposes. And yet even Peggy is going to think about it when she's back in the United States. She's going to remember what her parents would tell her. Because she's really struggling with bitterness and resentment and hatred towards the Japanese. In other words, she, she's human. <laughs> she dealt with everything we would be dealing with. But she also was a human who gave herself to Jesus. And so therefore she was transformed by the love of Jesus. And she, one of her reigning thoughts was, what would my parents have said to me? They would have said, Peggy, our job is to show Jesus to them and to love them. You must forgive and love them. This is like her memory. This is what her parents would have told her. And so she chose to remember the words of her parents. Her parents loved the Japanese people, but they loved Jesus above all. So this is going to impact Peggy Covell. Peggy Covell is who she is because of her parents and because of her parents' investment in her. So even though her parents might feel like if they were to look at their life on paper, it's like, okay, what did we do? What did we accomplish? We went over to Japan, really didn't reach anyone, uh, and died. <laughs> it's like, well, that was great. But what they did is they invested. They invested a picture of Jesus Christ of of love and forgiveness unto their daughter so that their daughter is now in a key position to make an impact. She doesn't know that. Peggy doesn't know that. Jim and Sharma don't understand these things. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And so in that camp, and see if I can say this guy's name, Kazuo Kanagasaki was in that Japanese camp, and he's going to be extremely rude to Peggy and he's going to recognize that Peggy is forgiving and loving back. And finally, he hears her story. He overhears that her parents were killed by Japanese. And he cannot figure that out. Because revenge is what Japanese do. She's, she's sneaking around and she's going to try and kill us. In other words, their mentality is revenge is actually like a high virtue even. And yet it leads to bondage. And even the, all the Japanese feel it. They feel that they're in bondage to their hatred. But that's the highest virtue. And so it's like a twisted culture. She, they see Peggy Covell full of life, laughter and smiles and songs. What does she have? She has forgiveness in her heart and she has love. And it melts this man so thoroughly that he actually becomes a Christian. He gives his life to Jesus. He heads back to Japan and Mitsuo Fuchida is currently, he's on the war path because at the end of World War II, there's all these Japanese war crimes, and they're trying to try the Japanese for war crimes. Like, that's ridiculous. Every nation would do the same. Every nation would treat their prisoners the way the Japanese treated theirs. So he's, he's doing all this research on it. And so Kazuo Kanagasaki comes back, and he says, you were in a prison camp. All right, he sits down to interview him, and what does this guy share? He says, they're not all the same. This is how I was treated. Let me tell you about this young girl named Peggy Covell and what she did. And Mitsuo Fuchida has no grid for this. He has no comprehension. He's on the warpath to try and prove the fact that these 
war crimes against the Japanese are ridiculous. Every nation functions this way. Not a Christian nation. At least a Christian nation shouldn't. In other words, there's something different here. And it actually then, what does it do? It melts Mitsuo Fujito. Jim and Sharma Covell's love and forgiveness impacts Penny, Peggy, which then impacts Kazuo Kanagasaki, sorry if any of you speak Japanese and you know that I'm butchering these names, which then affects Mitsuo Fujito, which then affects an entire nation of Japan, who at that exact moment was in desperate straits and available and open to the gospel. And Mitsuo Fujito is able to impact thousands upon thousands for Jesus Christ. The craving to do something big. I know, we, we all sort of have it. It's like this desire to greatly impact the world. But what we fail to recognize is that sometimes when we will just reach out to a Kazuo Kanagasaki, when we'll go to the bookstore, the, book the boot store, and be willing to give an awkward presentation of the love of Christ to a little Dwight, that actually the ripple effect of that love can change the world. We don't have to do the big things that the world seems to imply. If we're of any value on this earth, we need to do big things. What Peggy did was a big thing, and yet it didn't look big on paper. For us, I would say it actually should give us hope to recognize that the way this battle is won is not by us having to go to the front lines and do something magnificent. It's doing something magnificent in small ways that are even hidden and no one will see. Most of the people in this story don't actually know the ripple effect of their life. Edward Kimball doesn't know the ripple effect of that meeting with D.O. Moody. Oh, he knows D.O. Moody, right? So he could be encouraged by that. He doesn't know the ripple effect of how his life was used by the Holy Spirit. To do something big, first you need to be willing to do something small. That's actually one of the proving grounds for all of us is we oftentimes want to aim big and there's nothing wrong with big. God's not against doing big things. It's just that to be prepared to do big things, you need to first be willing to do small things. And if you're not willing to, be, to do small things, well then you're not fit to do big things. Moses was ready to do big things for God. And God needed to work on him for 40 years to get him to the point where he's like, God, I'm, I, I can't do this. And he goes, now I can use you. He had to learn to tend to sheep before he could tend to a nation. And for each of us, we need the same trip on the backside of the wilderness for 40 years. Usually, hopefully, it doesn't have to take 40 years for us. To actually work us over to the point where we recognize the small things matter to God. Matthew 25. So this is... Uh, the troop of sheep that can't remember when they did all this good stuff for Jesus? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say unto you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. One of the, have you ever been on a long trip and you're driving down the interstate and you realize about an hour's past and you cannot remember driving? I don't know if any of you have ever had that phenomenon where you just passed a lot of territory, but you don't actually remember it. Like, you saw it, I'm sure. I'm sure you saw signs and cars zooming around you, but you can't remember a thing about it. Like, maybe you're listening to an audio book or something. I don't know. In a deep conversation, it's like, okay, that's weird. Christianity. See if I could liken it to that. 
when you are living for Jesus, you're not conscious. You're not supposed to be conscious about the fact that you're loving. I need to love right now. I need to love right now. I need to, I need to do kind things. I need to be merciful. I need to be patient. You just are. Our stress is not to try and be Christ. It's to abide. It's to get into that deep conversation with Jesus and lose track of the fact that we've just gone 100 miles loving people. We are just prepared to serve. That's what we do. So many of us are at layer one of Christianity where we're cognizant of the fact that we're trying to drive down the road. It's like, oh, I need to stay in the lane. I need to stay in the lane. Whoa, I feel like I'm veering a little. We're so cognizant. Remember when you first started to drive? Some of you haven't driven yet. But when you first start learning to drive, you're very conscious of the fact that you're driving. Everything you're aware of. But as you become more comfortable in it, you start to just drive. You don't ponder. Like if someone were to say, how did you drive here today? What was it like? Could you tell me about the drive here? I, I just got here. I, I mean, I can't remember much about it because I just did it. Now, if it was your first trip ever and you were driving from the Looney house to the Ellerslie campus, you'd know in great detail that trip. And the same is true here. You're seeing these sheep that are just loving sheep. And so as a result, when there was a stranger, when there was someone naked, they knew what to do. They don't even, it's like, when did we do this? I, I don't remember driving that hundred miles. However, their nature was the nature of Christ. Christ had moved in and become at home inside of them. This is what we do as Christians. We don't tactically plan to love. We love. My life was changed by this quote-unquote love. So I'm going to give some fun stories from my life. So I found this online, poor guy. He's a realtor. Uh, so I, I looked him up, and I found Peter online. Uh, so Peter Trost was, uh, had an impact on my life. And I mean, I don't even know that he knows this. I'm sure I've told him somewhere along the line, right? But it was my parents, I want to say 25th wedding anniversary. I was back from college, and... I was going to a Christian college, but I wouldn't call it Christian. I, I would put some quotations around it, okay? They were doing a good job of uh, getting everyone to believe the Bible was a bunch of uh, myths. You know, that was my Christian college, right? So I come back, and I am hanging in the balance spiritually. And I didn't realize that. I wasn't thinking about that. And I was ignorant in a sense of how dangerously close to the edge of extinction I was spiritually. And, but God was working inside of me, but I couldn't even see that. But there was a stirring, sort of like, can I live this way? Can I continue to go in this direction? And if you look at the map of my spiritual life, I was just about to give my life to Christ. I mean, radically. And it was going to be about a month later after this. Okay, so that's, but what was the trigger? This guy, and you know, when you're, when you're in college, you're pretty cool right? And when you're one of those fuddy-duddy parents, you don't feel so cool. And it's sometimes hard to speak to someone in college or in high school or in junior high, especially when they have the cool vibe going. I had the cool vibe going. And so I was leaning disinterested against the counter in my parents' kitchen and, you know, just sort of watching everything that's happening. I was a nice kid, right? But I was cool and I was probably a little better than all of this, right? I had other things I could be doing, but I'll support my parents. Peter has a heart 
for this young guy named Eric. In fact, if I were to go back in time with this guy named Peter, when I was growing up in, in church throughout junior high and high school, I didn't like church at all. And the reason was is that no one knew my name. That's what I would say to my parents. They would call, my brother and I would go there and they would call us the boys. And uh, it's like, oh, uh, so hi, how are the boys doing? It's like, well, my name's Eric, is what, it, what was in my head. And if you don't know my name, it obviously shows me that I'm not very valuable to you. So this is me sort of pushing away Christianity, right? And, but there was one man in the church that knew my name, Peter. And so Peter had access to my life, why? Because he knew my name? Well, sort of. In other words, I told my parents, I go, yeah, I, I really like uh, Peter and Priscilla. Uh, and like, well, why? What? Uh, well, they, they know my name. And that was literally even my reasoning in, in high school. It was someone that actually knew my name. And so if there was one person, even though he may not have known it, that had access to my soul, it was him. And so guess who comes up to me and leans against the counter at the 25th uh, reunion uh, or anniversary? Is that what it's called? 25th wedding anniversary? Yeah. Uh, and so he's leaning up next to me. He goes, <coughs> hey, Eric. Mind if I ask you a question? That's fine. This is what he asked me. Where are you at with Jesus Christ? We didn't know how to answer that question. But it was weird. That one question created a ripple effect in my life. It awakened me to begin to think about that. Because I said, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm fine. I think, I hope. <laughs> it was interesting, that man's pursuit of me, though you could say, well, that wasn't very much, and he probably even felt this, like, I should have said this, I should have said this. It was a Mr. Kimball moment for my life. And it led to, my sister gave me a book over Christmas called No Compromise about Keith Green's life. I took it home, I remember her giving it to me, and she said, I think you're gonna like it. And I'm thinking, a book? My sister gave me a book. Suck it up on my shelf, I took that book off the shelf a month after this meeting with Peter, and I encountered Christ. And I gave everything to him. But this man's love for me, and his willingness to be uncomfortable and lean up against that counter, because I mean, I know what it's like. That's hard to get into that moment, because I was giving every indication, leave me alone. Instead, he didn't leave me alone, and then he didn't just do small talk. What did he do? He went for the jugular. It's like, that's hard to do. If any of you have ever been in a conversation, it's one thing to say, okay, I'll try and slip in Christ, but it's a whole other thing to say, where do you stand with Jesus Christ, especially to a cool college student, okay? I needed that, and it had a ripple effect on my life. So that's Leslie's mom, Janet. And uh, I was, I'd been praying for my future spouse. And if any of you know our love story, it's a great love story. But this hilarious moment in our love story is when we are at the Runkles house. That's uh, it's Leslie's maiden name, Runkles. We're at the Runkles house and we're having a prayer time. And so our families were close. I was back in town from the mission field. And I was struggling because this young girl was in my life and I felt like the devil was attempting to bait me to be distracted with her. She's five years younger than me, there's no way. And I was so guarded because I had made so many mistakes in relationship, I wanted to do this right. And so uh, I had seen a play, a musical, and she'd walked out onto stage and you know, I, I was distracted. I thought she was a little older than she was. I found out she was actually pretty young. 
And I was like, no, no, I, I rebuke you, O Satan. Okay, I am not going there. I mean, I'm going to guard my thoughts. I'm not going to have that. Th I'm not going in that direction. And uh, so then we're in this uh, prayer time, and I wanted to, you know that propensity desire to look spiritual, especially to other people? It's like, hey, I've been in the mission field. I can pray. And yet God sort of clamped me down like, don't pray tonight. And I really wanted to show that I could pray. And instead I was quiet the whole time, and the only thought that goes through my head is, uh, I looked up for a second, I saw Leslie, and I, I felt like, I, okay, I, I don't know what voice it was, but like, she's the one, okay? And I rebuked it. I was actually upset over that, and I was like, I am not falling for this. There is no way. And so I'm like spending my time not praying that night and wrestling with this, and uh, Janet comes up to me afterwards. This is one of those humorous stories in the lore of uh, Eric and Leslie, uh, Eric Leslie's love story. And she says, uh, Eric, before you leave, and it was like very awkward for her, before you leave, I, I need to say something. I go, yes. God wants you to know something. That is that he spoke to you tonight, and what he spoke to you was from him. Does that make any sense to you? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, uh, here's what I said. I'll, I'll pray about it. That's what I said. <laughs> I'll pray about it. But I mean, literally, it started a domino effect because... I, I couldn't accept it at the time, but it's weird because that one statement from Janet created a, you could almost say it gave a sense of a whole. Like I could not see how God could be in that. She's five years younger than me. That doesn't work, right? It was, it was just fascinating. That's, that's a humorous one. Uh, Brian, so I found this one online too. Uh, he has a business out in uh, Michigan. And in my first year of marriage, Brian saw something in my life that he wanted to invest in. And the only way he knew to invest in it was to hire me. He says, I want to give you a job, but I also want you to spend this first year focusing on your marriage. And so he would give me, I don't know if it was like Thursday, the whole day off just to enjoy Leslie. And he'd pay me for it. I mean, who, who does that, right? And then we were being asked in our first year of marriage to share our love story all over the place. Everyone wanted to hear it. And it was driving us crazy. I know that sounds weird, but it was driving us crazy. We did not want to talk about our love story. We would just leave us alone. But everyone wanted to hear our love story. So we sat down in like three weeks and wrote down our love story. And we just were like, we, we're just going to stick that in someone's face next time they ask. It's like, just read this. Don't, we're not, we don't want to talk about it. And so Brian hears that we did that and funded the printing of that book which is going to then go all over the world. It is going to end up in a publisher's desk and a publisher's gonna call us up and says, this needs to be published. It needs to go around the world. And Brian is the one that did it. He was just, a, I mean, he hardly ever even talks. He's just a quiet, silent character. But if you were to look at the impact of Leslie's and my ministry over the years that, I mean, that book is going to lead to other books and. Our book on relationships is still to this day one of the top-selling books in all Christian history on the topic. Where does it come from? A guy named Brian, who on the outside doesn't look like he's doing much, right? He's running a company, but he sees this young guy and he says, I want to help him. I see something in him that God's wanting to do inside of his life. He's a Mr. Kimball. He's a, uh, a Jim Covell, Jim and Sharma Covell. They are what their work looks like on the outside is small, but the impact on my life was significant. 
Luke 19, 17. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you are faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. For each and every one of us, I would say, if we could catch the vision of, first of all, love, and then we could catch the vision of the small things, to realize that nations can be changed in and through the willingness to do what a Christian is called to do. When you're staring at the dynamics of World War II, it's desperate, it's dark, and it's evil. And in the midst of it, you have the ten booms. In the midst of it, you have the Wormbrands. In the midst of it, you have the Covells. In the midst of this dark world, we're here. We're here, and though our task might not seem magnificent, if we would take the little moments today and begin to love and to do what Christ would do if he had access to our body, I would guarantee that the world will be changed. I know that God does not waste the obedience of his saints. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those for whom, you, for whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, for your and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. So as we go through World War II, if you go back over the terrain, you see me get excited about the fact that Great Britain is finally standing up against this evil uh, regime known as the Nazis. And I'm thrilled to see it happening. And yet, it could seem like a contradiction. How could you be excited about that, that resistance to the evil, and then read that on the screen? And I would say they're both true. In other words, there's the issues of nations, there's the indiv issues of individuals. And as we understand this world, there is a need for us to stand against evil in our soul and to repel it the way you're going to see Great Britain repel Hitler. You need to have that same attitude in your soul, but that same love that you're going to see from Peggy Covell needs to be in your heart towards a German in front of you. It's like, how does that work? So I'm supposed to love that German at the same time I'm supposed to repel the evil. Yeah. Yeah, kind of like that. And so the dynamic of these things is, yeah, you could call it tricky, but that's, it's Christianity. Jesus at the cross, you know what he's doing? He's loving those that are mocking him. He's forgiving those, and yet he's crushing the head of the serpent at the same time. He is wielding a violent military attack at the same time he's loving. Yep, Christianity. We are called to decimate the powers of the evil one, and yet we are called to love those that he came to redeem. And that great paradox of Christian living is what we get to share in together. So let's start with small things and let's love well in and through them. Father,
This is for you. For your kingdom and your glory, your fame and your renown. Lord, I pray that you would teach us the tensions and how to balance the issues of standing firm for truth and standing against evil and resisting the devil so that he would flee. At the same time, loving our enemies. Lord, at first it seems like a contradiction, but I pray that you would give us the healthy understanding of how to live as Christians in this dark age. Lord, teach us our weaponry. and Teach us how to use it even today. May we be men and women of action. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.